Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. USU philosophy professor Charlie Heeneman, writing for threequarksdaily.com, says we all seek to capture the world with a net of language. Yet it's in the nature of nets to capture some things and let others slip away. And that goes for languages, too. What's left unsaid speaks volumes. We might resign ourselves to this fact, the inescapable limits of what's sayable. But, in fact, a great many minds have sought to construct the perfect language. Today, we'll explore the limits of language and the impulse to create the perfect language. We'll tell stories of some of the most interesting attempts. We'll examine the current promotion of international auxiliary languages, look at fictional languages, and speculate about which languages will be spoken 100 years from now. And we'll hear examples of Esperanto, and we'll hear a bit of Shakespeare's Hamlet in Klingon. Looking forward to that. Our guests include USU philosophy professor Charlie Heenemann. Thanks. Sure. In. Happy to be here, Tom. And USU folklorist Lynn McNeil, thanks for coming. Glad to be here. Both of you returned to the program. Thank you uh, so much. Uh, so, uh, Charlie Heeman, what's the impulse? You, 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 you say the period of time you're studying, yeah. uh, you have a funny image of uh, everybody in a cafe speaking their own universal language. What was the impulse? Well, I think a big part of the impulse was the, the waning of Latin in the early modern period. So throughout the Middle Ages, if you learn to read and learn to write, you learn Latin, at least in Europe, of course. Uh, and, and so as Latin fell out of favor, as medieval philosophy and, and medieval thinking generally fell out of favor, vernacular languages became more and more used. But that led to a problem that if you don't know that language, you can't read this stuff. And so uh, scholars especially saw the need immediately to have some kind of language, uh, a lingua franca, that everybody could access to. And Latin was no good because it was bound up with medieval thinking, scholasticism, and Catholicism, all of which uh, many of these early modern people were trying to get away from. So tell me about Leibniz as the center of your, your article. Uh, his attempt to create this this language which could not be misunderstood. Yeah, yeah. Leibniz thought, and he was certainly not alone in this, that uh, that human thinking has atomic concepts, right? Basic, basic concepts like being alive, being an animal, uh, not being alive, being a stone, all of these very primitive concepts. And he thought of them along the lines of like prime numbers, the basic numbers that are just the units that make up all of the other numbers. And so he thought that you could take, uh, take the concept of being human, and he thought, well, that's being a rational animal, and you could let rational be represented by the number two and let animal be represented by the number three. And that's the prime factorization of six, which could represent you know, the concept of being human. And so he was thinking very mathematically, very logically about meaning and about languages. And he thought it should be possible to construct a perfect language that wouldn't be ambiguous at all. And once you and I agreed on the terms and agreed on their precise meanings, we would never really have any occasion to argue over metaphysics or theology or religion. We could just settle on the meanings of our terms. And, and he even said, we could sit down and say, let us calculate, right? Let us do our division to see who is right about, oh, the nature of God or the nature of human beings or whatever the case would be. A very real question, because, of course, Leibniz was born just at the tail end of the 30 year war, a religious war which decimated about a third of the population of Europe. And so it wasn't just uh, religious controversy wasn't just something nice to avoid for the harmony of life. It was imperative to avoid, you know, to keep people alive. You can see the impulse, yeah. yeah. Uh, in fact, Leibniz had a had a machine? Yes, well, uh, I mean, Leibniz has so many dimensions, it's impossible to believe that there was just one guy, Leibniz, who did all of this. But uh, along with uh, matching up language to mathematics and calculations and so on, he thought, well, mathematics is a kind of system, and it can be mechanized. And so he created this box of gears and levers uh, that he called the stepped reckoner, which was basically the first, well, one of the first, anyway, mechanical calculating devices. And it could multiply and divide, and it could find square roots and even cube roots. And uh, so this was part of his effort to uh, find a, a kind of secure, stable system for understanding and for language. Yeah. And it, you know, it seems ingenious. Uh, yeah. For example, as you, as you in, under his system or a system of if rational is two and animal mm -hmm. is three, then man is six, right? Right, right. If yeah. you take ape as ten, right, exactly. one cannot be divided into the other, so that would mean something. Right, that would that would mean that uh, that uh, being human is not part of being an ape, and being an ape is not part of being human because 
10 is not divisible by 6. <laughs> and it sounds ludicrous to, our, to, our, to us today, but uh, it, it, Leibniz was not alone in thinking this. And, and the more that you get into Leibniz's system, the more you begin to think, well, why shouldn't it work that way? Don't our concepts mean something? Don't they stand for something? Aren't they distinguished from other concepts in some meaningful way? Why can't this be automated? And in fact, I mean, that's a, a, a very much part of the process of trying to create machines that can speak languages, right? Uh, like Siri, right? Or, mm -hmm. or in the movie Her, to create an automated system that can use language as well as we can is bound up with this dream of systematizing language and finding the rules that we follow when we think and speak. Lou McNeil, I want to bring you in here. Uh, and as a folklorist, of course, you you concentrate on culture, and, and, and as we know, language and culture are very much bound up yeah, absolutely. In, in each other. And language, that description of you know what was happening as the institutional language of Latin was falling apart into all of the Romance languages that, that we're left with, there, the, the idea that those languages had value was a big thing that we still see today, that the vernacular language, the language that we learn at home, not the perfect language, whether it's English or Latin or whatever, that we learn through our institutions is an important, valuable way to communicate, is one of those things that it's it's easy to overlook in the face of, you know, perfection or correction or something like that. But mastery of that, mastery of that vernacular language is an incredible skill that that people have, an incredible ability that that people can can utilize well. We we've often seen people who can function in a variety of different vernacular spheres. I've talked with scholars who say they speak in a particular local dialect or accent at home, and when they get to the university, they can you know, shift frames and change their language so that they can speak within another context, within another frame to another group of people and still be understood there. And that's a, an incredible artistry that, one, I think we would lose if there were something like a a perfect language created. And I also think that the minute we created that perfect language, people would begin immediately adapting it mm -hmm. to their local circumstances. Yeah. I mean, folk speech is a, is an evolutionary process, kind of like all folk culture is. By, by definition, not being bound to an institution means that we can reshape folk culture, whether that's our words or our stories or our customs or our beliefs, to meet our immediate contextual situation. Mm -hmm. So when we need a new word, we generally agree upon one. And if someone suggests a word that doesn't really ring true with the majority of people, that word doesn't succeed. Right. And if a word emerges that seems to serve most people's purposes, we keep it mm -hmm. and we use it. And eventually it gets institutionalized and added to our dictionaries. And we see that that process going on all the time. I think one of the things to keep in mind, though, is that that evolutionary process of of finding fitness, the idea of survival of the fittest, the most fit anything, creature, concept, word, is the one that's going to last. Fit doesn't mean ideal or or best or or most glorious. It simply means most utilitarian to the specific context. Mm -hmm. So we do end up with, <clears throat> excuse me, with words that are inexact and messy and things like that. Or even not as noble. Right. Like earlier we were talking about selfie being the word of the year, right? Yes. Which is sort of embarrassing in some sense, <laughs> but undeniably useful. Exactly. And what would we do without that concept, without that word? We needed a word for it. We came up with that word, and now it's useful, whether we like that our culture is saturated in selfies or not. It's mm -hmm. there. Let's, let's hear a, uh, uh, a clip that we've uh, prepared. Um, this gets us into... Um, languages that are constructed, right? And we uh, this I think Charlie go, goes mm -hmm. to that impulse, continuing yeah. impulse to try to create a better language, right? And you know Leibniz, as we were saying earlier, was was trying to create a perfect language, but many more attempts throughout the sixteenth, uh, seventeenth, and eighteenth centuries were just to create a practical universal language. And there were, in, in fact, I was reading one. Uh, bibliography that listed 83 separate attempts over the 17th and 18th centuries uh, to create a universal language. So this was a rage of an age, 
all sorts of people creating all kinds of languages. And that's what led me to say if you went into a coffee house in London in 1650, you would hear everybody speaking a different perfect language. Right. <laughs> the irony there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Um, so let's hear a bit of uh, Esperanto. This is, uh, we took this from YouTube. This is a couple of guys explaining what it is and, and then demonstrating. Uh, this is one of the most successful oh, yeah, definitely. languages. Yeah. Uno, do, uh, uno, uno sufichas. I'd say it's the simplest language to learn. Anyone can learn. Saluton, mi nomo estas Richardo. Sal, mi nomi just Kaya. Kutimiki, mi havis mi an alien unitigma, mi as simply alta. Just hearing upshots, you'd be forgiven for thinking this was a Spanish or German conversation. But if you listen closely, you'll realize it's neither, or kind of both. I actually stumbled across it when I was um, surfing Wikipedia. I found an article about international languages, and I'm like, this sounds interesting. Richard and Kaya are part of a group of just a few hundred Australians who speak a made-up language called Esperanto. It's the 1870s, and a linguist named Ludwig Zamenhof is living in Bialystok, in what is now Poland. He found, like, in the village where he grew up, there's four different language groups. you got Russian, Polish, Yiddish, and I think it was German. And they all stuck to their language groups, and they never talked to each other, and they always fought, and they always fighting. And he figured, OK, we created a language where everyone could talk. Zamenhof hoped Esperanto would not only bring the village together, but the world. Basically, Zamenhof wanted to create a universal second language to bring about world peace. It's ambitious. A language that didn't necessarily come from anywhere, but that could be spoken by anyone. So naturally, it had to be quite easy to learn. So we heard in that clip a little bit of uh, Esperanto. This is, uh, you know, widely spoken. Mm-hmm. This is a prescriptive language, a, a constructed language. Right, yeah, and uh, Rudolf Carnap, who was kind of the 20th century version of Leibniz in a way, and had, had a lot of Leibniz's goals of creating this logically perfect language, he was also an avid Esperanto enthusiast. And he would go, there were international Esperanto conferences, and he wrote in his autobiography about the joy it was to go anywhere in the world and you could usually find somebody who was a devotee of Esperanto, and immediately you could stay with them, you could speak language with them, and it had so many advantages. I mean, imagine how convenient it would be to have an easy kind of language to learn, uh, perfectly expressive. I mean, Carnap talks about going to performances of plays by Goethe that were translated into Esperanto, and uh, easy to learn and universal. You can go anywhere and speak it. I mean, it's a, it's a marvelous idea, but it never really took... I mean, it, Esperanto is the greatest success case, but even so, it's pretty marginal, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it just never comes to be. And we also have the concern that even if you're speaking the same language, your use of that language might differ from place to place in, in thinking about this question. Um, one form of folklore, of course, that, that requires a good, artful understanding of language is humor, jokes. Mm-hmm. And so I found this joke on an ex- Esperanto website oh, that uh, this is the translation. I do not speak Esperanto. Uh-huh. And the joke is one man says to another, how long have you been learning Esperanto? And the other man says, well, I've been learning for about four months now. And the first man says, really? And how many books of poetry have you written? <laughs> and, I mean, this this may seem sort of, you know, non sequitur or a strange claim. It's followed by an explanation of the culture of Esperanto, which is that it seems that in the Esperanto community, the first thing most students of Esperanto do upon learning enough of the language to do it is write a book of poetry. Mm-hmm. And uh-huh. outside of the community of Esperanto devotees, I would not know that. That's right. a joke that I right. could understand the words and it would go right over my head, as so many right. jokes do when mm-hmm. you can understand the words and not the 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 reference. Yeah. Yeah, I found it funny. I mean, I laugh just because I, I picture anyone learning Esperanto as having to be totally in love with it, right? So mm-hmm. much in love that the minute you learn it, you would start to write the magnum opus of Esperanto mm-hmm. or the great poetry of Esperanto or something. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's it's really a, a geeky sort of thing, although, I mean, its appeal is undeniable. It would be wonderful to have a simple-to-learn universal language. Yeah, but as you said before, uh, take Esperanto as an example. You invent this language, and you would expect that almost immediately there would be individual adaptations. Yeah. There would be, 
new words that may not be universal throughout Esperanto. Yeah. It would start to fragment almost immediately. Almost immediately. And that that's something that we see with language anyway, and a part of that is you know, regionalism. People in different places develop slightly different words for the same thing because you're with the people you're with and you need to call it something. And maybe you don't communicate all that often with people somewhere else who are calling it something else. Um, the internet changes that a little bit as we all can check in with each other a little bit more. But one of the interesting ideas that folklorists certainly have had to deal with over time is the assumption that that change is a degradation rather than a development or growth or, you know, improvement. This idea that, and, and this was a really common idea in the study of folklore, especially in the 19th century, that any alteration was an immediate fall, an, an immediate downward slide. And to, to the point where people were suggesting ideas that the performance of folk songs or the narration of a story was the first step in ruining it. There's actually a, a German word for this, and I have no German speaking abilities, so forgive my accent, but Zersingen was the idea that you could sing something to pieces, basically, that, that, that the performance was the first step in the ruining of a thing, which is wonderfully counterproductive. You know, it's, it leads to that mentality that we need to get all our perfect examples of folk songs and folk narratives and hide them away in a book mm -hmm. or an archive mm -hmm. and never use them lest we destroy them completely. And I think folklorists now are are almost a 180 from that in that looking at this ongoing evolutionary process not as degradation but as a a flourishing in utility hmm. perhaps let's take a break when we come back we'll uh, talk more about language uh, charlie heenman uh, writes in threequarksdaily.com about the search for the perfect language as we've said uh, that falls apart almost immediately um, so what are the limits of language what are the impulses we're trying to correct? And we'll talk about some fictional languages. One of the most popular is Klingon. We're going to hear uh, a, a bit of a snippet, Hamlet's speech from uh, Shakespeare's Hamlet in Klingon. And I'll just leave you with this before the break. I found this in Wikipedia, who's linked over to LinkedIn. Um, a, a study found that the three most widely spoken constructed languages are in the extended network of colleagues of this person are Esperanto, Interlingua, and Klingon. That's just an example. And I think probably anecdotally we could say that's probably not far off. If we, if we all pulled our, our colleagues, we'd probably get a, a similar uh, sample. Anyway, we'll hear some Klingon, and uh, we'll hear a very interesting uh, couple of clips from an uh, interesting episode of uh, Star Trek coming up. This is State of the Arts. Every home should have a work of original art, according to Alice Merrill Horn, an early Utah legislator who ran for office in 1898 on a platform of advancing the arts. Representative Horn wrote legislation that organized the nation's first state arts council, established a statewide art competition, and appropriated state funds for a collection of work by Utah artists that continues to this day. She encouraged schoolchildren from around the state to contribute nickels and dimes from their milk money to buy art for public places such as schools and libraries. That early investment has paid off. Utah is now home to more than 9,000 professional artists, and Utah's art galleries are a $159 million industry. State of the Arts is brought to you by the Cache Valley Center for the Arts in Logan, Utah, with a cooperative gallery featuring the work of more than 30 participating artists. Details at cachearts.org. The following is an encore presentation. However, we would like you to participate with this conversation. You can do so at upr.org, or on our Facebook page, or on Twitter with hashtag AccessUtah. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. You are listening to a conversation on language. The impulse that has been with us, I think, probably always to create the perfect language. We've talked about some of the problems with that. Interesting stories uh, revolving around that. We'll look at the future of language. Which languages will be spoken 100 years from now? Uh, we're looking at international auxiliary languages, constructed languages, and fictional languages. Uh, all of that here on... Uh, on Access Utah, and you're welcome to join the program. You can join us at upraxcess at gmail.com, and we're on Twitter. Use the at Utah Public Radio handle. I'm talking with USU philosophy professor Charlie Heeneman and with USU folklorist Lynn McNeil. 
so I want to uh, move to a, a very interesting uh, episode of uh, Star Trek. And hopefully you're a Star Trek geek. Uh, if not, uh, you can still enjoy this. Uh, but it's a very interesting episode having to do with, uh, with language. And uh, so this is Star Trek The Next Generation. Captain Picard and the crew have arrived at a planet of uh, Temerians uh, responding to a signal. But the problem is, even though they have a universal translator, which translates any language in the universe uh, so it can be understood, they still can't understand the language of the Temerians. Uh, so let's hear this uh, first clip. This is uh, Captain Picard trying to, uh, trying to make contact. Captain, would you be prepared to consider the creation of a mutual non-aggression pact between our two peoples, possibly leading to a trade agreement and cultural interchange? Does this sound like a reasonable course of action to you? In winter. Impressions number one. It appears they're trying their best, as are we, for what it's worth. Shaka, when the walls fell. Darmok. Darmok. Bry and Jiri at Lunga. Shaka. When the walls fell. Zina at Anzo. Zina and Bakar. Darmok at Tanagra. Shaka. Mirab, his sails unfurled. Darmok. Mirab. Tamok. So, as we're listening to this, we can understand that they're, they're speaking proper names, place names, mm-hmm. but there's... You know, we can't understand what they're trying to say. Right, yeah. Uh, interesting. So as we find out through the episode, um, the Cap Picard and the the leader of the Temerians are beamed to a, a planet. They face a common foe. Um, and in the process of this, finally, the, the captain uh, comes to understand what the Temerian language is all about. So let's hear the second uh, clip here. Hail the Temerian vessel. Aye, Captain. Cinder! His face black, his eyes red. Tamak. The river Tamak. In winter. Dermak. And July. At Tanagra. Dermak. And July. On the ocean. So Khan, his eyes open. The beast of Tanagra. Uzani, his army. Shaka, when the walls fell. So that's Star Trek: The Next Generation, and uh, for if you've seen the episode, it's it's very moving. I've got I've got hair on the back of my neck. Stegum. It's it's a, it's a lovely episode. Uh, but what's happening, uh, Charlie? Is is uh, as Picard learns, the Temerians speak t- completely an allegory. Right, it's, and the and the beauty and the power of that show, and I'd, I'd love to hear Lindsay more about this, is that. Uh, to understand the language, you have to understand the culture. You have to know their history. You have to know what the metaphors are standing for. And it's only when Picard understands the stories of this other culture that he can understand their language. And that deepens, I mean, it's rare that television ever does this for us, but it deepens our understanding of how powerful language is, how deep it goes, and how resistant to any kind of mechanization 
it can be. The, the breakthrough, Lynn, was uh, the, the, the Captain Picard finally understands. That, for example, the phrase keeps being repeated, Shaka, when the walls fell. He comes to understand that's failure or, or death. Mm-hmm. Um, the the, uh, the journey on the sea, that's, that's a trip. He comes to understand, once he, once he understands that they're speaking an allegory, then, then he can break through. And there's a very moving scene where the Temerian wants to hear an allegory or a story from, from the world, from the human world. And Captain Picard shares with him our story of the Epic of Gilgamesh. And it's, it's surprising. It, out of context, it must sound ridiculous that this would be such a moving episode of television. But it really is because we don't need to know other people's stories to know the value of those stories. Mm-hmm. And the the idea in this episode that they are reenacting one of their stories where Darmok and Jalad meet on an island and conquer a, you know, terrifying creature together and then sail away together and, and end in friendship. They are trying to to create that situation here with Captain Picard and his crew. And this misunderstanding of the language causes, of course, things to go terribly wrong. And I won't spoil the episode, but um, everyone go watch it immediately. Um, But it is watching Picard share a story that we all know that's meaningful to us and finally be able to communicate with, with these people really highlights, one, how, how, much of an obstacle cultural misunderstanding can be and then how much of a doorway it can be once you find that key to be able to relate to people and Mm. and language really can't be divorced from from culture even thinking of places that speak the same language technically and the different ways that they utilize that language the different turns of phrase things like that um really highlights that. And sometimes I wonder if that's the reason why these attempts at universal languages never really quite make it. Because to have a, uh, it seems to me anyway, to have a full expressive power in a language, you need to have that culture and the background and this whole network of references and so on. And the invented languages like Esperanto can do that, but only insofar as they kind of mooch off of the other languages and cultures that that people are coming from. Mm. That's a great point. And I think... It's one of the reasons, perhaps, that fictional invented languages, like those that appear in science fiction, yeah, right. almost work better because they're obviously fictionally paired with a culture that accompanies it. I mean, we don't speak, even even not within one culture, we don't speak in a vacuum of words. Mm-hmm. We, our, we, we engage in speech acts, right, that involve things like tone, and facial expression and body stance and volume and pitch and speed of speech and all of those things go into making meaning when we use words and the example i always use with my students is we've all experienced this you can tell a joke you can say the words of a joke and communicate non-verbally to the people listening to you that you do not find that joke funny right. or sure. perhaps that yeah. you even find it offensive right and if we as folklorists were to just write down the words of that joke and label it joke and store it in an archive somewhere, someone would come along and find it later and say, well, I I guess they thought that was funny, those horrible people, whatever, you know, Uh Uh offensive nature this joke has. And so when we pay attention, when we try and document language within a culture, we have to document all these other things that folklorists use the word texture to describe the, the feeling of things. So knowing the same words is no guarantee of successful communication. Hmm. I want to uh, reference an article. This is in the Atlantic Monthly. It's a, it's a long article. Um, it talks about this episode of Star Trek that we've just uh, talked about. And, and then it uh, says, and I hadn't known this, but uh, apparently there are some Star Trek fans who, uh, while enjoying this episode, have a beef with it. And that is the uh, Tamarians who speak this very abstract allegorical language they say that they could never have developed warp drive or some of the, you know, the technology. <laughs> for, for example, Tamarian would not have a, a, the ca- capacity for saying, Bob, hand me the three-quarter wrench. That's, yeah, don't let the poets anywhere near the warp drive, I think, <laughs> is, is the story. But, you know, it, it, I mean, every language is just so infused with metaphors and references and so on that uh, I'm probably, uh, my, my feeling of the, the, the 
of the fault and the premise of the Star Trek show, as wonderful as the show is, is that no language can continue to stay metaphorical or keep at a metaphorical level without those metaphors kind of being brought down to earth into literal meanings. Um, uh, and the example that I mentioned was talking uh, to you about before the show was we use uh, the locution I, I used to, like I used to go there all the time. I used to go there every week. But when you break apart that phrase, I used to, it, it doesn't really make any sense why that should be. And I, and I don't know the origin of that phrase, but in my made-up uh, uh, history of the phrase, probably you can imagine various tools that gain their shape because they're used frequently for some purpose, like a paring knife in your kitchen usually develops a kind of curve to it, depending on how it's been used. Or you might think of the creases in your shoes or something like that. And similarly, by doing something repeatedly, we become used to that activity. It makes sense to me, right? And, and even if it's wrong, it's still an example of how something that's originally metaphorical just loses that feeling of metaphor and just becomes a literal phrase for us. Mm -hmm. So the engineers are every bit as poetical, mm -hmm. uh, as poetic as the poets are. They just don't know it, yeah. or, or perhaps they don't. You'd, you'd maybe like to hang around with the Temerian engineers more than, you know, because they would speaking in high, they'd be speaking in high flow. Oh, yeah, wonderful. Allegory. Classical references yes. of the Temerian canon yeah. or whatever. You'd come to understand those warp drives <laughs> in, in all new light. You okay. would. You would. Uh, let's uh, return to uh, one of the most popular invented languages. Linda, earlier you said the fictional languages mm -hmm. are perhaps have a better chance of success. Yeah, I think when a language can be paired with a culture that we find rich and appealing, um, it it takes on more comprehensibility to us. Klingon being an excellent example, and a big part of that, I think. It's, it's interesting talking about this question of fabrication to what ends. This is something folklorists deal with a lot. We actually have a, a term fake lore for <laughs> something that has been devised to look a lot like folklore and be passed off as folklore, but somewhat disingenuously. That is not actually a product of the people, but is sort of the creation of one person. And that never... People feel duped when that happens. But fiction lets us off the hook mm -hmm. with something like that. No one's trying to claim Klingon as non-fictional. They're presenting it as hypothetical or, yeah. or as, as possible. And if we picture, not that everyone is as large a Star Trek fan as I am, but mm -hmm. I'm sure most of us can picture a Klingon. You know, <laughs> so, and the, the clothing they wear, the, the hairstyle details, the, the bearing their own carriage of themselves, the way they speak, the way they act – fits that language. Mm -hmm. And more than the words, I think it's that encapsulation of a culture that, that rings true, that, mm -hmm. that, you know, that magic alchemy of coming together well enough to, to truly generate interest. I grew up with a, you know, Berlitz travel guide to the Klingon language. It was called <laughs> Easy Everyday Klingon. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it, it was, I never mastered the language, mm -hmm. but it was wonderful to, to think that that a fictional creation had led to, to something like that. And then, of course, Tolkien is the incomparable yes. master yes. of this. Yes. I mean, he, mm. he knows more about his fictional folklore than we do about many real folklore I mean, situations. Mm -hmm. and, and that so, folk culture gives those peoples and that world such a legitimacy yeah. that, that it would lack if they didn't have differing turns of speech or different food ways among the different peoples of Middle Earth. Mm -hmm. You can distinguish them culturally so clearly. Mm -hmm. I actually had a student who used to write me messages in Elvish on the backs of her quizzes. <laughs> and I was always, you know, I had to go online <laughs> to translate them. I wasn't able to myself. But I always thought how wonderful that, that that's even possible. Right. What, what are you, uh, so you had this Berlitz guide to Klingon. Uh, your student writes in Elvish. What what are you trying to experience? What are you trying to? What's the impulse behind that? You know that is an excellent question. My my first instinct is to say that engaging a language is one of the best ways to engage a a world, a, an in culture existence, and. I think these fictional creations are so appealing. I mean, who doesn't want to live in Middle Earth? Well, <laughs> not during the bad times, I guess. Right. <laughs> um, but that's that's such an appealing idea. I, I think it's the same impulse that makes us really want to go to Paris and read in a cafe and mm -hmm. speak French and eat baguettes. You know, mm -hmm. it's well, only now we have even more fanciful, fantastic 
worlds in which we can do that. And someone has gone through the work of providing us that access. That's mm -hmm. really an incredible feat. The, the Austrian philosopher Wittgenstein wrote that the limits of my language are the limits of my world. And so by learning these other languages, we exactly right. We develop, we can dwell into other worlds, right? Mm -hmm. Let's take another break. When we come back, um, we will uh, begin with a uh, Hamlet speech uh, in Klingon. We found on, on YouTube, uh, it was a troupe in Minnesota that put on, I think, the entire play in Klingon. That must have been quite the deal. Let's, uh, we'll hear just a snippet when we come back. UPR's business underwriters support the station and expose their products, services, and events to our loyal listeners. Let our listeners know by becoming a UPR program sponsor. For information on underwriting, please call Terry Guy at 435-797-3215. Thank you. One day, Sugata Mitra took a computer and he stuck it in a wall in a neighborhood in New Delhi. Just to see what would happen if I gave a computer to children who never would have one, didn't know what the internet was. And the results? Well, in nine months, those kids... would reach the same standard as an office secretary in the West. Untaught learning, next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. This morning at 10 o'clock here on Utah Public Radio. The following is an encore presentation. However, we would like you to participate with this conversation. You can do so at upr.org or on our Facebook page or on Twitter with hashtag AccessUtah. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We've reached our last segment. My guests are USU philosophy professor Charlie Heineman and USU folklorist Lynn McNeil. Uh, and we're talking about the search for the perfect language. Charlie Heenemann recently wrote in threequarksdaily.com about uh, Leibniz and other attempts uh, to create a perfect language. We talked about that impulse. And uh, now we move to created languages, fictional languages, uh, the limits of language. We'll uh, look in this last segment at the future of language. Very interesting article in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, the uh, John McWhorter uh, posits that uh, English will still be around. We'll have fewer languages 100 years from now. And those languages will be simpler. We'll talk about that as we go along as well. Uh, but first, I promised Shakespeare in uh, Klingon. This was a, a, a troupe in Minnesota to put on Hamlet in Klingon. Uh, first of all, Lynn McNeil, it's it's it kind of blows your mind if if you to, to, so for those of you who don't know, but Star Trek and Klingon, Klingon is a warrior race. Um, so death and honor. And uh, you know strict rules about honor, and uh, and war. Mm -hmm. So that's that's what Klingons are about. So it's kind of hard to envision a Klingon Hamlet who's dithering, you know. Uh, but but anyway, they the, this uh, troop put this on. And so what we hear is a bit of the to be or not to be uh, speech. Just imagine a Klingon warrior with his with his Klingon uh, you know weapon. Batleth. Yeah, Batleth is what that's about. <laughs> Thanks, and <Lynn>. and uh, <laughs> so here it is. Edge keep cool, both. My heart hit. Don't you him with? Rose, So you kind of get the idea. It's uh, anything in Klingon sounds angry, right? Uh, you'd have to know the Klingon culture and the language to get the nuance. But well, this is a long-running motif in Star Trek culture: the Klingon fascination with Shakespeare. This is something that crops up again and again, and and the the forms of Klingon art that are that are commonly portrayed are things like opera and theater and things like this. And and I think it's meant to stand in contrast, um, or perhaps to highlight the value of the arts within a warrior culture. That this isn't brutish. And, and unthinking, this is a, a cultured form of, you know, as you described, honor and, and the, the culture of a warrior. And 
I think this is a really nice example of how it how it's best when you can create whether it's a contrast or a perfect cohesion between culture and language. We see this all the time. I saw King Lear set in the Old West, um, and that was a sort of purposeful contrasting of times and ideas and what do these words mean when we put them in a different context and everyone's wearing cowboy hats and dusters and carrying rifles around and it it makes you think on those words differently the words set in different contexts take on different meanings and it it opens our ability to appreciate the words themselves when we recontextualize them this way hmm. charlie you mentioned it off air buddy Dog Hamlet? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, the great playwright Tom Stoppard wrote a, a play called Dog's Hamlet, and it's a very interesting and complicated short play. But the, the basic premise is uh, we as an audience start watching these people going about their business, and they're speaking English words, but we don't understand what they're saying. But over time, gradually, we begin to get a sense for how their language works and how it's different from our own. But then these characters in the play put on a production of Hamlet, which then, of course, involves plays within plays within plays. So you've got so many different levels working. But these, uh, the, the players are speaking the words of Shakespeare without understanding what they mean, although we, of course, understand what they mean, but we can sympathize with their incomprehension. And so uh, b- by the end of the play, you have no idea how language works anymore because now you've heard words that you understand and also shared in the incomprehension of people who don't speak the language that we do. Mm. Uh, yeah. So uh, is there a usefulness then in deconstructing it that way? Well, I think uh, it's always useful to make ourselves more conscious of everything that language implies. Um, sometimes uh, in pop culture we hear uh, complaints about political correctness and so on, and policing our language so as not to offend anybody. And granted, those efforts can often go to ridiculous extremes. But the basic point is very sound and important, that words carry a lot of force with them. And uh, what might sound like uh, a harmless word to you or me might strike somebody else very differently. And, And words have political consequences. People can be left out of conversations. People can be, uh, you know, marginalized or hurt, or uh, or made inferior just by words that we use. Um, and that's a it's a very deep topic and hard for us to think about because language is the water that we're swimming in, mm-hmm. and it's often what we're least conscious of. Mm-hmm. And so, any kind of effort to make us more conscious of words and their power, I think, is to the better. Yeah. Lynn, I wonder, uh, I was reading an article in the Wall Street Journal titled, what, will the world, what the World Will Speak in 2115. This is John McWhorter. Um, and in brief, he says we'll have fewer languages. He talks about how we worry about loss of language. He predicts we'll have fewer languages. So that got me thinking, what's lost? If you lose a language, what's lost? That's a really great question. I think oftentimes what's lost is an entire perspective on apprehending the world. They're the the idea of poetry in multiple languages, languages having different abilities to express abstract ideas or different metaphors for the same idea. There was a wonderful article, I think, um, that came from NPR just recently about local terminology for mental health issues mm. and depression and how difficult it is for people who go into other countries and try and work with people suffering from PTSD and depression when the language doesn't communicate it perfectly. And the example that they use that I thought was so beautiful is that Cambodians don't have a word for depression. They have a saying, which is, the water in my heart has fallen out. Mm-hmm. And the ability to, to treat people or to help people or to even just understand something like mental illness or, or depression becomes so difficult in, in trying to get around that language. But what just a perfect encapsulation of that feeling to say the water in my heart has fallen out. Mm-hmm. I don't ever have to have heard that before to know what that feels like because I know what sadness and, mm-hmm. and depression feel like. And in losing a language, we lose that. But again, there's that that language of loss and degradation. And I, I think we certainly don't want to ignore that, but we don't want to assume that's the only thing that's going to happen. We might end up with fewer institutionalized languages, but we will have developed slang, vernacular term, folk speech, 
for things we can't think of yet. Think of what selfie would have meant to someone before the invention of the cell phone or before the invention of the camera. I mean, we have adapted our language so vastly to accommodate the ways in which we interact with each other now, and it's pure utility. No one handed us a guidebook of, hey, everyone, there's this new communications technology, and here's how you're, all gonna, how you're going to describe Excuse these me. concepts. We developed it out of need and came to consensus astonishingly quickly. Although I think the interesting thing is that uh, – in. I mean, we now have communication across the world, right? Mm -hmm. And so we can all share in common cultures and so on. And I think part of what makes languages become different and, and develop their own characters and so on is they're uh, evolving in isolation from one another, typically, mm -hmm. right? And so to the extent that we lose that isolation with this interconnectedness, right, mm -hmm. it might mean that there's less variation, right? It's sort of like going to a convention hotel automatically, no matter where you are, Indianapolis, St. Louis, Denver, you know where the bathrooms are, you know what to expect on the menu, you know what the rooms are going to be like um, because they've been made uniform. Yeah. I think the, the one place we might see something different from that is in small scale cultures, folk groups, you know, tiny communities. One of the best examples that I hear from my students who play online video games with people from other cultures is that they begin to take on the colloquialisms of those other cultures right. because they're all communicating online together. And so I now I can't remember what language it is. It might be Portuguese. Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm sorry if I'm wrong. But my students will say the way that laughter is expressed. We would write ha 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 or a smiley face or, you know, lol, lol, something like that. And they, this other language, they will write the letter K repeatedly, K, 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 K. That means laughing or laughter. Ah, uh -huh. And a lot of American English speakers have adopted that because this small folk community is is international and is communicating in such a way that now that means laughter to them. They they think of that and and it transcends cultural boundaries. That's it's, really, because then instead of diversity over a geographic space, you get diversity over a virtual space, different yes. kind of tribes within the internet. And our boundaries really are all conceptual now. We don't yeah. have geographic boundaries. We have topical mm -hmm. boundaries or, or thematic boundaries that yeah. are very fuzzy. Huh. We just have one minute left. I want to get maybe a quick response from, from each of you. Mr. McWhorter interestingly predicts and this is always dangerous. In the year twenty one fifteen, Chinese will rule the world. That's not a that's not a uh, you know too out there prediction. Uh, but they'll be using English. English lingua franca will continue. He says it's already got there, and it's already used. What, what do you what do you say? Well, it's it's true certainly in scholarly circles that English has kind of become the lingua franca. I, I think. Students around the world, if they want to become scholars, are encouraged to learn English because there's so much academic work that is done in English. And and the same is true, so far as I know, in the world of business and commerce and politics as well. Uh, so it, it – and at some point, I mean, it's kind of an economic calculation. How much is it going to cost in terms of effort to translate everything into Chinese or Portuguese or whatever – uh, language you want versus just having individuals learn English and the resources are already there. So uh, it seems to me a pretty reasonable. Lynn, your 22nd prediction. I think a, a folklorist perspective would say, I want to know what language we're all going to swear in and, <laughs> yeah. and tell jokes in. And what language right. are we, what language are we going to communicate on the ground yeah. with each other yeah. versus, because that will always, I think, be distinct and perhaps even regionally, however we determine a region, mm. from the on-paper official language that any particular group of people has. So I think that will be something to not ignore right. over time. We will certainly not ignore it on this program. We'll probably revisit this. Uh, thanks for listening today to Access Utah. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a Utah public radio production featuring contributors who share a love of nature, preservation, and education. Hi, I'm Rue Mahoney with Stokes Nature Center in Logan Canyon. Utah is home to several iconic species, as indelible to our state's identity as the craggy mountain landscapes and red rock deserts we call home. Gnarled bristlecone pines stand like abstract architecture for multiple millennia. Elusive mountain lions roam our alpine meadows in the north, all the way to our red rock canyons in the south. 
And curious coyotes, as resourceful as our native and pioneer ancestors, are truly wily wayfarers, as adaptable to suburban environments as to open range. But however pervasive iconic species may be to perceptions about our state, there are lesser-known residents that are the true Utahns, species found absolutely nowhere else in the world. The word endemic refers to a plant or animals whose distribution is restricted to a specific region. Utah ranks sixth in the nation for endemic species, with 247 endemic plant species alone. One of these is Primula cusickiana maguireii, or maguire primrose. This unassuming reddish-violet blossomed wildflower, standing just two to four inches high, makes a living in the crags and depressions of limestone and quartzite outcrops along a 10-mile corridor through Logan Canyon in northern Utah. And that's it. You won't find it anywhere else on the planet. Of that narrow home range, maguire primrose is further isolated into two distinct populations within the canyon. Subtle differences in spring temperatures between the canyon walls often lead to one population blooming before the other. And while some species of primrose can survive by occasionally self-pollinating, Maguire primrose is entirely dependent upon pollinators like bees, moths, and the occasional hummingbird for reproduction. Therefore, the success of Maguire primrose requires a precise balance between cool temperatures for development and blooming, warmer temperatures to encourage pollinator activity, and a sufficient number of compatible mates blooming at the right time in the right place. In addition to these natural challenges, the U.S. Forest Service reports that Maguire primrose is increasingly impacted by recreational rock climbers, who clear cracks and crevices to accommodate permanent anchors along popular routes. Stokes Nature Center and our Forest Service partners in the Logan Canyon Children's Forest hope to increase community awareness about Maguire Primrose to recruit our fellow nature lovers, including rock climbers and other canyon visitors, to become informed stewards of this rare and vulnerable wildflower. Wildflower enthusiasts can find Maguire Primrose blooming from mid-April to mid-May at elevations of 4,800 to 6,000 feet. Flowers are more prevalent on north-facing cliffs where moisture from spring snowmelt is abundant and cooler temperatures nurture bud development. Stokes Nature Center, in partnership with the Logan Canyon Children's Forest, offers seasonal guided field tours where canyon visitors can learn more about natural and human threats to Maguire primrose and enjoy a chance to see a true Utah species found nowhere else in the world. For Wild About Utah and Stokes Nature Center, I'm Rue Mahoney. Wild About Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on UPR is made possible in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend on them. Information at cnr.usu.edu. Hi, this is Robert Siegel of NPR's All Things Considered, your evening news destination. You know, events unfold throughout the day between Morning Edition and All Things Considered, so tune in for Here and Now with Jeremy Hobson and Robin Young. It's in-depth news, analysis, and extraordinary stories that you won't hear anywhere else. Join us for Here and Now, today at 11 on Utah Public Radio. 